Welcome to the latest edition of Health on the Line. In a few minutes, you'll hear an interview between me and Suzanne Mason, who's led a piece of work for the CONFET about the urgent and emergency care pathway. It's a fascinating conversation, so uh, please do listen to that. But I'm talking to you now from uh, the foyer of our conference, of the Integrated Care System Network. It's a brilliant gathering. We've got 41 of the 42 ICSs here talking about a whole range of issues. Uh, one of the things we're most interested in is how we can make an input to the work that Patricia Hewitt has been asked to do about how we get the accountability framework right for the relationship between ICSs uh, and the centre. That's a really important piece of work and we're delighted that Patricia's asked us at the CONFED to support her in that work. The other thing, of course, people have been talking about is the autumn statement. And we've welcomed broadly the extra money that's been made available for health uh, and for social care. Of course, it's not going to be enough on its own to close that yawning gap between demand and capacity in the system. But that's why we were also pleased to see a commitment at long last to a properly funded workforce plan due to be published next year. So look, these are really challenging times for the health service as we move into winter. We all know that. It's going to take a long time to get back to the health service that we want and need. But with that extra money, with the commitment from the government to devolve more power to ICSs, there's a palpable sense of hope and possibility at this conference. So, do stay on, listen to the conversation with Suzanne Mason. New ideas. Big debates. Meeting the change makers. Transforming services. I'm Matthew Taylor, and this is Health on the Line. Brought to you by the NHS Confederation. Well, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Sue Mason uh, from the University of Sheffield School of Health and Related Research. Suzanne joined Sheffield University as a senior clinical lecturer in 2001, was promoted to reader in 2007 and personal chair in 2010. She now divides her time between the university and as director of research and development at Barnsley NHS Foundation Trust. And one of so your main research interests is evaluating complex interventions in emergency and urgent care. And the reason why we're speaking uh, today is that you have written a report we'll be publishing in a few days' time, which is our contribution to the review of urgent emergency care being undertaken by uh, NHS England. So that's what we're going to focus on. But first of all, Sue, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me to speak today. It's uh, it's our pleasure. Just be, just before we get into the UEC, tell us more about about what you do because you 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 have seems like quite a complex role that you've got, and tell us about how the different bits of it work together. Yeah, so um, I I have a role at the university, as you were saying, basically uh, leading um, a lot of research around urgent and emergency care. I'm trying to improve. Um, patient outcomes and service delivery um, within urgent emergency care using, you know, really good, uh, robust, evidence-based uh, evaluation. Um, but I also am clinically trained in emergency medicine, so that's my area of interest, my background. Uh, I've just recently given up uh, clinical work for uh, family reasons, um, and now I'm focusing on research, developing research in, in the Barnsley Hospital uh, Trust, which is, is a relatively new role for me, but really exciting to be able to try and uh, grow research in a, in a, a small organisation uh, that's really challenged, 
but um, is also really keen to give the best for the patients. Um, so that's been a really enjoyable experience for me. Let's go straight to the the report that we'll be publishing very soon. What what, what are the top line conclusions that you reach uh, in in the report, Sue? My uh, reading of after speaking to lots of people and reading around the subject, and obviously with my background, I think the problem that we're facing at the moment is that we just have a system in urgent care that's not fit for purpose. Um, It's not set up to service the needs that are out there in the population at the moment, which are um, many people with complex needs, um, both mental health, but also physical health needs. lots of people who have long-term conditions and have exacerbations of those long-term conditions and need support when they have a problem. Um, And the system we seem to have at the moment is very much focused on delivering to the most acutely unwell patients. So it delivers, it it measures acuity, its performance is measured on addressing the acuity in the population. But a lot of what we're currently seeing is not uh, life-threatening, Um, obviously that's some of our work, but it's not life-threatening emergency time critical problems. You know, the vast majority of it is is more urgent care, uh, which needs a timely response. But the system that's set up at the moment for that is not really geared towards the outcomes that those patients are looking for. So this is something that we hear a lot. And indeed, just the other day, there was a report, wasn't there, from Scarborough Acute Trust, which suggested that only around a third of patients being conveyanced to the uh, emergency department there were patients who really needed to go to the uh, emergency uh, department. Now, I've been in meetings, quite high-level meetings, where what has been fascinating to me has been really a, a, a quite a strong divergence of view. So, one view, which I guess is probably the most prevalent view, is, well, how do we stop people going to ED, calling ambulances uh, who, who don't need to? There is, however, a kind of minority view, which I've heard, which is, well, we've had this problem for a long time. The whole point about emergency departments is that they're always open. Um, it's going to take a long time for us to be able to sort out access to primary care, for example, Perhaps we just need to accept this. And actually what we need to be focusing on is what do we do when people walk through the doors of emergency department? How can we effectively triage them through to to, to urgent care? What, what, where do you stand on that debate, Sue? I, I mean, I think, you know, we do, we do need to have a whole culture shift right through from, you know, the public understanding and perceptions of how they use the system through to how professionals use it. Um my my feeling is, you know, once a patient's turned up in an emergency department um, wanting to be seen, it's possibly too late um, to to address that because that's just going to cause frustration um, and 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 actually it's often harder to turn a patient around and send them away than it is just to see see them there and then. Um, I think we need a system where we can um, deal with the the need. Uh, earlier um, and at the moment those systems consist of of either calling the GP or the 111 service or the 999 service Uh, and and at the moment none of those seem to be addressing that that need Um, and 
patients turn up in the emergency department because the lights are always on. They know that they will be seen there, but it's often not the right place for them. And that's one of the reasons that we become overloaded with work. One of the reasons, there are many others. Um, And uh, some sort of navigation system needs to be developed that allows us to use the whole range of uh, services that are out there accessible that patients find very confusing and difficult to to know what to do uh, and what to do for the best for them and their family. So, so I guess there's a kind of long-term and a short-term element to this, isn't there, Sue? So there's a, a the long-term vision is that patients get the care they need when they need it and that, uh, that, that we would have a primary care service that was able to provide um, the levels of access that the public want. I think we we sometimes overstate how difficult access is to primary care. You know, most people who who get through to their GP will be seen on the same day if they need to be nearly everyone within two weeks. But nevertheless, there are issues around primary care access. That 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 when people do contact one one one, they will get the right a, a advice and only be directed to emergency services when it was necessary. Where um, uh, ambulance services were more able to offer people help over the phone or in their home and not convince people to emergency departments unless they needed to, where emergency departments were really effective at triaging and redirecting people to urgent care if, if that's what they need. All of that, we can kind of see what that whole system might look like and many of the kind of recommendations in the fuller stock take apply to elements of that of that system so that's that's the kind of vision we would have but there's a short-term problem and the short-term problem is a, a system which has more demand than it can cope with and and my experience quite often sue when i speak to people you know, speak to leaders is that is that they they will say initially that the problem is this problem of too much demand but very often if i push them they will then say well my part of the system ends up taking more risk than other parts of the system to what extent do you think it's it's necessary when we think about how we act in the short term at least to deal with the problems that we've now got that we have a kind of what sometimes referred to as a shared truth about where risk lies in the system I, th- I think that's very important and I think that that's something that because we don't look at things from the problems particularly from a system perspective on the whole in the NHS um, we don't consider where risk is best held um, and shared and certainly in managing potentially the short-term problem we need to be realistic about the fact that we are holding a lot of risk and look at where it, it's most effectively um, spread. Uh, I'll give you an example uh, which won't go down well with my emergency department colleagues but um, at the moment the biggest problem for the, for the ambulance service is handover delays uh, that that's the single biggest thing that they want to have dealt with. Uh, if they have that dealt with, I think they felt they will feel more able to cope with the immediate problems that they're facing over the winter. So, in my view, why don't we just deal with handover delays and get get that sorted? One of the biggest reasons we now have handover delays is because during COVID we stopped having corridor medicine in the emergency department because of infection control. So the problem was pushed further down the line and patients were held instead of in corridors, they were held in ambulances. Now, I know of one ICS uh, that's looked at this from a systems perspective and said, do you know what? 
We're better off holding that risk in the emergency department and removing those patients from ambulances and actually putting them in the emergency department. The risk is less to the whole system and the patients within that system if we have patients in corridors in the emergency department and then release the ambulances to deal with the patient who's been on the floor for 12 hours. And that's the, the, that's the perspective that that ICS has taken. And they're now encouraging that, that practice. Now, it's not perfect. It's not a solution in the long term. But for, for getting us through the next few weeks and months, it may well be something that systems should be looking at in terms of how they're managing that risk and holding it within the system. Yes, and I think the NHSE is encouraged, I think they refer to the North Bristol model, encouraging hospitals to expand corridor care, but also um, possibly have uh, uh, patients sitting outside wards in beds outside wards you know using space to do that I think I mean I you know I I understand that as as something which addresses the fact that the greatest risk is ambul- delayed ambulance response times I think most people would say that is the single biggest risk in terms of patient harm but of course the danger is that we end up undercutting the future by the way in which we respond to the short term. So what we do is we have more beds. Um, we try to expand what acute can do, that um, uh, more emergent, new emergency departments are build bigger emergency departments. But that, in a sense, is a pattern we've seen a lot in the health service, which is we have a systemic problem. It, it's most... Uh, to excuse the pun, acutely seen in the acute sector. And so we, the resource ends up going into the acute sector. And actually, if we want the broader solution, we'd be looking at investing across the rest uh, uh, of the system. That That's a bit of a kind of catch-22, it feels like, Sue. Yeah, I completely agree. And obviously, the quick fixes risk as saying, well, we don't need to do the, big, the bigger plan, the longer-term plan, and, as you say, invest in those other areas that really don't you know, don't touch the emergency department, but but the, the knock-on effect is that they're not able to do their role uh, and execute their jobs. So um, I think you know it, it, it it's very difficult um, in terms of short-term fixes because um, uh, you know one would be tempted to leave the system to fail, but that's also leaving patients at risk and staff vulnerable. Um, uh, in the longer term, there's no doubt that what we need is an expansion in bed capacity and uh, to fix the social care problem. I mean, th- those are probably the two biggest things that the, 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 that the NHS could deal with at the, at the moment and in the longer term to, to, to deal with the flow problem and the demand. And uh, uh, my understanding, hearing evidence recently at the House of Lords from um, um, ministers and NHS England is that they are... They don't really have a very robust plan for how they're going to do that. They talk about 7,000 more beds over the winter, but many of those are virtual um, and trying to recruit international uh, staff to fill the social care gap, which is significant. And I think probably that is not going to be sufficient. So I think that, um, you know, at the moment, it feels a little bit like there's a lack of robust, strong leadership and a clear vision for how we're not only going to get through the next few weeks, but uh, you know how we're going to get through the next five to ten years. So, my experience, Sue, co- complex problems rarely have a single solution, and and I think if you look across the the pathway, there are 
various parts of the system that we need to I- I explore without, as it were, blaming. Uh, so ambulance conveyancing rates vary. Um, I was in Wales recently where their conveyancing rates are, are very, very high. In, in other parts of, 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 of the UK, they're lower parts of England, they're, they're lower. So that's part of this story, isn't there? We have to kind of understand why it is that some ambulance services find it easier to find alternatives to taking people to emergency departments. Do you have any reflections on that? I think there's a, a mixture of, of uh, issues there. I think some of it's down to skill mix. Um, and so, um, well, start higher up. Some of it's down to the, the individual ambulance services themselves. And I think that there's quite a lot of... Uh, there are a number of challenges in ambulance services where I think uh, they are. There's a tendency to be embedded in some antiquated values, which I think uh, need to be addressed. Having said that, I think there's a skill mix issue amongst ambulance workers uh, in some parts of the country, whereby you know there is insufficient. Um, clinical decision makers who can treat and leave a patient at home but indeed the other issue we see often is that there are a lack of pathways open to paramedics so whilst they may wish to leave a patient at home um, having referred them on to another service that's going to respond I think there's a that that there's a lack of that happening uniformly and at scale across the country um, now we're evaluating um, an urgent care hub model where um, a number of urgent care hubs have sprung up around the country, which are delivering multidisciplinary care and, and paramedics can refer patients into that, knowing that they will get a two hour response um, to uh, their, the needs of that patient, which means that they don't have to transfer them to hospital, that they can leave them at home, knowing that a community response will be there. And those those hub models seem to be taking off some of the heat from ambulance services and also from primary care, when GPs often can't get through to the hospital on the phone, and they also need a timely response for a problem that they're facing at that moment. Um, so there are pockets where there's good practice, what we're not seeing at the moment is a, is is that being rolled out in a uniform manner, um, and but but also with the is sufficient flexibility for that to address the particular needs of those populations, which may be around their health inequalities or the level of deprivation um, within them. So I think that you know there are solutions out there. It's just that we're not we're not seeing that. We may see it in the strategy that's coming out, but we're not seeing that being sort of rolled out sufficiently. Uh, robustly and, and and rapidly at the moment. Uh, and and what about one one one? And do you feel that I mean, you know, in a sense, it is there to provide alternatives to nine nine nine, enabling people to get reassurance or advice or to be redirected in ways which don't then result in an ambulance coming out. What's your view of of, of how well the one 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 service is doing that job at the moment? I think 111 is is really struggling at the moment. So um, we have to look back at what uh, the, originally a 111 was NHS Direct, wasn't it, which was run by nursing staff. So it had that clinician first, you know, contact with the patient over the telephone. That was the intention. It then kind of morphed into basically a call centre with, with call handlers who have very little 
uh, clinical training or experience and use this sort of algorithmic approach to calls. Um, It's created basically a new demand in the population. I don't think it's serviced any existing need or demand that's there. I don't think it, well, all the evidence shows that it hasn't reduced um, demand on emergency departments or ambulance services. And we also know that the level of calls coming through are very low level calls. They're very low acuity, uh, way over 75% of them uh, do not need an emergency department or 999 response. So again, it's back to this thing of, you know, it's servicing some sort of need in the population, um, but it's certainly not that emergency um, need that's going to really change outcomes. My view is, you know, the, the money put into 111 and the resources put into it could very well be used in a different way. Um, but we're, I feel like we're probably stuck with it. I can't see any minister who's going to say, let's just scrap it. So what do we do with it? Well, what we probably do is increase the number of clinical call handlers who are, who are that clinician first response that patients need. And certainly work done um, by uh, ourselves on some of our 111 data, but also down in the southeast has shown that having, um, uh, for paediatric calls, having a clinician first really changes the outcome. And it, and and those clinicians are able to reassure parents, give sensible advice, and then the call is dropped. So there's no onward referral. And that would appear to me to be a much more efficient way of delivering a telephone service um, rather than, you know, um, um, the very risk-averse nature of the service. By its very nature, it has to be risk-averse at the moment, which means that, that too many calls are being referred to the ambulance service and the emergency department, uh, which are avoidable. Yeah, and, and I, I wonder whether another element of this, uh, Sue, is, is that, um, I, I, as I said, most people, if they need to see a GP, they can, they can, they will see a GP on the same day if, the, if, if it feels like that's necessary and overwhelmingly within, within two weeks. But the problem often is not, is, is, is actually just getting through to the primary care centre, the GP surgery. And I know one of the things that NHSE are looking at is is how we can just make sure that the phone gets answered quickly. Because actually, if the phone is answered and you're told someone will phone you back or you're told that you can get an appointment at a certain point, that will reduce the number of people who who kind of give up, who, 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 who give up because the phone isn't being answered or who have heard so often that it is hard to get through to your local GP practice that they don't even bother and they phone 111. So we, we have to look, don't we, at multiple points of entry into the system to see how we could do better to give patients just the initial response, which can quite often be enough not for them to end up then kind of bouncing around the, the rest of the system. The reality is that people need to speak to somebody who has some knowledge, not, not just clinical knowledge, but some knowledge of the system in which you know they're, they're, they're living uh, and to be to be able to signpost sensibly. And one of the problems with 111 is that the directory of services that they have is often A, not detailed enough and B, not up to date enough to be able to provide that sort of sensible advice for callers. Um, I, I think being able to respond to a call quickly is important. Um, although, you know, if calls are, I don't know, if, if, I think a lot of calls being dropped one could question whether they should be calling in the first place, but that's that's probably another conversation. Uh, and I think primary care equally struggle with that. And, and uh, yeah, so I think finding ways to have a timely call response and be able to then provide sensible signposting advice uh, and clinical um, support is, is absolutely vital if we're going to have a sort of call before you come approach, I think is what you're sort of alluding to. 
So, so let's 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 step back and and think about the system as a whole. And and what's clear, I think, from our conversation and from the, the report, your report that we'll be publishing in a few days, is that we need a system response to this. And and that should include and has to include social care, which of course is out with the work that NHSE will be able to do on this. Um, so. Well, actually, before we get into thinking about the systems, let's just talk about the social care dimension, because I think that's one of the important points you want to make in your report, which is that any attempt to resolve the problems in the urgent emergency pathway that doesn't confront the difficulties of social care is is, is really kind of failing to address the, 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 the situation as a whole. Absolutely. Um, it's... It, it, I think, what is it, 160,000 job vacancies in social care at the moment. And then with the, with the new cap coming in, their workload will, not, will, will actually be increasing. So the number of um, people that they will have to become responsible for will actually go up. Um, and yet the, the sort of pool of resources is reducing. Um, I think there's also, uh, there are also challenges in social care in the way that community care liaises with hospital discharge systems. And some of the people I interviewed for the report were very keen that, again, it's back to the risk sharing, isn't it? That, um, you know, they they had a greater input into uh, planning that discharge for individual patients. There are some models of this around the country, I think, that have been quite successful. I think Swindon is one of them where where they're having daily sort of board rounds of those those patients who are ready for discharge, but for some reason can't go home. Um, and having local council and social care input into planning that and ensuring that that happens in a more timely way. But but that, again, comes down to the whole thing around, you know, we need a system, a joined-up approach, and unfortunately we can't separate health from social care. With the ageing population we have, they are integrally linked, and um, it's absolutely essential that that is a seamless link without the feeling that there are, there are the barriers there preventing patients from moving from from hospital to home um, and at the, at the moment it would appear that, that that that's creating a lot of the flow issues that we have so yes I would say that is front and central to what needs to be dealt with by ICSs but also um, you know at the NHS uh, level and you and I are speaking today um, and hopefully by the time this is broadcast it would have changed but we're now I think six weeks since the government announced £500 million for a delayed discharge fund, most of which was slated to go to topping up domiciliary care wages, to helping uh, systems with the biggest kind of challenge around patients fit for discharge. Six weeks later, we still have no idea how that money is going to be spent. And it's supposed to be there to help with winter pressures. Well, you know, it's it's mild today, but winter is certainly here. So it does suggest a kind of lack of urgency, which is which is which is slightly worrying. Look, so just to just to kind of end our conversation, I, I, I want to talk about about systems and and places as well. Um, we, we are the organisation that represents ICSs, and we're very proud to do so as well. And I, I think one of the things we always want to emphasise and our ICS leaders do as well, is that we, we want a different kind of leadership from ICSs, both through ICPs, uh, kind of partnership body, but also through IC, ICBs. And, and that is a form of leadership which is really about empowering, facilitating, problem-solving, 
adding value, not a kind of bureaucratic, regulatory, controlling layer. And when you look at something like UEC, you can see the power of having a body whose primary role is to enable the kind of ecology of the local system to work effectively, to bring people together, to uh, use hard tools like data, but also soft tools like intelligent process and effective relationships to make the system work as, as, as a whole. But but my worry, I think, is, and the worry of other of, of ICS leads, is that, is that if if NHSE, DHSE, lean on ICSs to become bodies which do a great deal of regulation and control, responding to kind of central targets. They won't be able to do this kind of facilitative enabling system management work, which could be their kind of USP. What's your view on that? I think there's a huge risk here uh, that that the ICSs are being given a a big agenda, um, but that they as you say, they, they won't be allowed to evolve and to evolve their systems in the way that we all really would love to see happen. Um, and I think the risk is that we will be shifting blame. So it will be used as an opportunity to shift blame when things fail onto the ICSs and to beat them over the head with a big stick uh, rather than um, encourage that sort of, uh, as you say, the evolution of good practice, of innovation, uh, and trying to, to develop the service that their local populations need. Um, so regulation in some way should sit with the ICSs, yes. I mean, in terms of the risk sharing that we've discussed, I think absolutely. But, you know, CQC need to step up and, and, and become, and they're starting to do this, become more responsible for the regulation of systems. And and I think that the, the ICSs need to be left to deliver the services that, that, that are needed in the way that, that we need to see them evolve. Um, and and that needs to be, I think, very clear mandate given by NHS England and the Department of Health down to them in order that, um, they, that there isn't that confusion. But it, it is a concern that I have that, you know, uh, eventually they'll just sort of retreat and become, uh, you know, beaten over there, beating each other over the the head with sticks and also being beaten themselves with sticks. Uh, and that's not something that, it, as we know, is helpful. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. So, and I, I, I feel that the danger is that we are underestimating the, the, the radical possibility presented by public sector bodies whose primary role is to empower and enable systems to work rather than, as it were, to control and you know when i talk to acute leaders that's what they want for example they mm, they absolutely. want systems to solve problems for them they don't want systems to be kind of second guessing what they're doing because they're already subject to cqc regional oversight and national oversight so many years ago when i worked at the rsa i wrote a set of blogs about public sector collaboration place based collaboration and i said that you know we invest in bricks but we don't invest in cement you know we we invest in pistons we don't invest in oil and actually that's often what is missing and so if ICSs were 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 freed up to to enable systems to work more effectively together they really could be make a huge difference and also kind of speak to a very different kind of model of public sector leadership and certainly what we're doing at the confed working with ICS leaders is to explore how we can develop that kind of different style of working Mm. well look so it's been absolutely great 
talking to you and thank you for doing the piece of work uh that you've done for us which will be published in a few days time we'll publicize it widely be on our website so sue thank you thank you you've been listening to health on the line from the nhs confederation visit nhsconfed.org for more information about us and to register for events and webinars that delve deeper into the issues explored in this podcast